You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now let's read that passage from Philippians chapter 2. Let's uh, focus our attention this evening on the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2 for our reading, but uh, I'm going to focus the message this evening on the first section. It's on page 1179 of the Church Bible, 1179. Uh, Remember the context of this is chapter 1, verse 27, which begins a new section in Paul's letter to the Philippians, in which he's uh, urging them to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, even while they live in the context of the Roman Empire. And he's drawing, as we've seen a couple of times, on the fact that if you are a Philippian citizen, you are counted as a Roman citizen. And therefore, you lived not only under the authority of the empire, but you lived according to the laws, the, the lifestyle of the Roman Empire. Um, you, were, you were Romanized, even although you were a Philippian citizen. And Paul, later on in chapter 3 at the end, will say to these Philippians that their true citizenship is not here on earth, but in heaven. And so he's urging them from chapter 1, verse 27 onwards, to live as citizens of Philippi, not just as Roman citizens, but as citizens of the kingdom of God. Uh, And their lifestyle, therefore, uh, will be quite distinct. And he's going on to speak about that later on. And this is such a relevant word uh, to us today, isn't it? I think, uh, at least in my lifetime, especially today, it becomes clearer and clearer whether Christians will live under an increasingly totalitarian-style moral regime or whether we will live in this world as those who are citizens of another world altogether. And uh, so, Paul is urging them, chapter 2 and verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And now to this evening's verses. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But particularly, chapter 2, verse 5 to verse 8 is our focus of attention this evening. Let me begin, if I may, with a quiz. It's almost Christmas time. Christmas time's a time for quizzes. I don't like quizzes anymore, but that gives me liberty to ask you. And this is a church history quiz and a Christian doctrine quiz. If the 1960s can be included in church history, which, of course, they can. 1965, 51 years ago, almost exactly this weekend, I was a 17-year-old, very shy, almost paralytically shy, first-year university student. I knew nobody in my family who had ever been to university. I was brought up in the East End, not in the West End. This was a completely new experience to me. And at the Friday night Christian Union teaching meeting, eight o'clock in the evening, the speaker was introduced and began his message, I've no memory of the details, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, 51 years ago, which qualifies it as church history. The speaker was the antithesis of myself. He had been born into a home where his father had been knighted for services in military medicine. He had been the head boy of one of the three or four most famous English public schools. He had graduated with distinction from the University of Cambridge. And as he stood up to speak, he spoke with the, that slightly clipped accent that public school graduates of Cambridge University often adopt. I'm not sure I can completely mimic it but his first words silenced us. What, he said, what is the secret of Christian unity? Well, I sat on my hands. I certainly wasn't going to take a stab at the answer. There was that, nobody did this. There was that slightly embarrassed silence, and then somebody took a stab at the answer, and oh my, got it wrong. (laughs) So here is the quiz. (laughs) Who was the speaker? And the second question, what's the right answer to his question? (laughs) More of that, if I can remember later on. Paul's concern at this point in his letter 
is from chapter 1, verse 27, right through this passage, actually, and the greatness of the passage should not divert us from Paul's purpose in writing these words. His concern is for the unity of the fellowship of the church in Philippi. Unity so that it can stand firm in the context of a society that is opposed to the gospel. And unity within the fellowship so that it may be strong within in order to cope with, to withstand, and to stay standing after the attacks that come upon it from the outside. And it's in that context that he makes this appeal to these marvelous words in chapter 2 and verses 6 through 11. I'm almost certain these words have produced more scholarly writing than any other passage in the whole of the New Testament, potentially in the whole of the Bible in the last 50 years. And one of the reasons for that, and you would have caught a flavor of that as we were singing that paraphrase of Philippians 2, 5 to 11, is that many people have thought this may in fact be an early Christian hymn. Uh, certainly, uh, as you would see from the paraphrase, perhaps from other hymns that you know based on this, the words are very easy to turn into a hymn. In fact, in some ways, they're easier to turn into a hymn than some psalms are, because we're not absolutely certain that all of the Old Testament psalms were actually sung in the Old Testament. And so, you can understand quite well that there is a fascination with these words and the marvelous way in which they flow from eternity to Calvary and then back to eternity. In fact, they express a pattern that I think is present in all the great passages of the Bible that focus on the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of Isaiah 53 that we've been studying recently, how it takes Christ from exaltation at the end of chapter 52 down through humiliation in chapter 53, and then up again to exaltation and triumph at the end of the chapter, or the 22nd Psalm that we were singing, that begins with the humiliation of Christ, that then ends with the resurrection and exaltation and triumph of Christ, or even the Psalm that is most frequently cited in the New Testament in connection with the Passion of Jesus, the 69th Psalm, that has this same pattern of Christ coming from a position of majesty in a manner that is characterized by humility and then being exalted in divine glory. And Paul is introducing this, amazingly introducing this, not in the first instance so that we may become more learned in our understanding of high Christian doctrine, but in order that the truth of it will make an impact on the style of fellowship life in the Philippian church and through this inspired letter to all Christian believers 
in every place and in every time. It's one of the great illustrations in the New Testament that in order to do and be the most basic things as Christians and as churches, we need to know as much of Christ as we possibly can. And it's an illustration of the fact that you'll see if you just read through Paul's letters that whenever he is concerned about something going wrong in the church or something going wrong in your Christian life, he makes a beeline for Jesus Christ. He's constantly resolving situations, problems, and dysfunctions by essentially saying, if you simply knew and understood and felt who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what He has done for you, then it would be like some powerful solvent to these problems or or these alienations or these challenges that you have in your own life and in the life of the Christian fellowship. And so he says to them, now here is the here is the here is the key thing. Notice what he says in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which means have it individually, in order that you may have it corporately. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now those are rather ambiguous words, aren't they? This mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Does Paul mean uh, look at Christ and imitate Him? Or does Paul mean because you belong to Christ, this is the mind that the Holy Spirit works in you? And almost certainly he means both. The former because of the latter. Because you're united to Christ, because the Spirit who dwells in you is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the most astonishing reality, isn't it? There are, there are not two Holy Spirits. The Holy Spirit who was present in the life and ministry of Jesus and the Holy Spirit who comes to us as though we received some kind of other Holy Spirit, second-rate Holy Spirit, lesser Holy Spirit from the Spirit Jesus received. No, the New Testament emphasizes so often that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who comes to indwell believers, to shape the minds of believers through the Word of God, is one and the same Holy Spirit who dwelt in and on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, the very same Holy Spirit who during those 33 years of Jesus' life and ministry, from His conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary to His ascension at the right hand of the Father, that is the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sent to the church on the day of Pentecost, and who now dwells within every single Christian believer to such an extent that Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, if you do not have this Spirit, you do not have Christ, and you are none of His. 
My friends, if we only believed the gospel, we believe. And so his point here, I think, undoubtedly is that through the Spirit, through the indwelling of Christ, through the teaching of the gospel, the mind of Christ has been given to you. The disposition of Christ is being recreated in you. So, let it out in the way you live. And that, of course, raises the obvious question, so what is this disposition of Christ? What is this mind of Christ? And Paul does a, a, a really a, an astonishing thing here, what we were singing. In the first few verses, he describes the mind of the Lord Jesus towards the incarnation. And then, in the rest of the song, he tells us about the mind of the Father with respect to the incarnation. So, in the first few verses, we could say, this is the incarnation from Jesus' point of view. And in the rest of the song, this is the incarnation from the Father's point of view. And it's from Jesus' point of view that we're going to look at it this evening for a few minutes in verses 6 through 8, which you remember Glenn Harrison reminded us last Lord's Day morning is so similar in pattern to John 13. Indeed, if you want some homework during the week, uh, get two Bibles out, turn one to John 13, turn another to Philippians chapter 2, and then just work your way down through, although he knew that he had come from God and was going to God and everything was in his hands. Jesus, we are told, was in the form of God. And then work your way down through what Jesus did, coming down, coming down, washing the feet. And once he had washed the feet, taking his robes again, rising up and going to the honored place at the table. It's the pattern of the fundamental pattern of the gospel. And I want us to look at this in three stages. The first, to see what Jesus was in heaven, in his divine person. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God. Jesus, who was in the form of God. That word form there do, does not, in this context, mean just external appearance. It, Paul is not saying he was in the form of God, but he wasn't really God. What form means in this context is to, is to have all the attributes of the particular reality that's in view. Just as later on he'll speak about him coming and taking notice in verse 7, the form of a servant. In the upper room, Jesus didn't just take on the form of a servant and pretend to serve. He expressed a servant heart in servant acts. And this is what Paul means. This is the wonder of the incarnation, actually. The one who in all eternity is in the form of God. He possesses 
all of the attributes and characteristics, all the power and majesty and glory and honor of God. Remember how John's gospel begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face to face with God, and the Word was God. And this is what he's saying about our Lord Jesus Christ. He's describing in uh, this section what theologians often speak of as the, the two states of the mediator, the state of exaltation, because he is from all eternity the second person of the blessed Trinity, living always in the bosom of the Father, as John says in John chapter 1 and then the state of humiliation into which he enters in his incarnation. But notice what he says about uh, Jesus, the Son of God, in his divine person, that he was in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, that's also a somewhat ambivalent statement, but I think what it means is this, that he didn't count his equality with God a consideration that would lead him to the view, if they sin and fall into this wretched condition and will be damned for all eternity because of that, what is that to me? I am the ruler of the ages. I am the Lord of creation. I dwell here in all eternity. It is, it is nothing to me that they die in their sins. And not only so, but it would be beneath my dignity to do anything about it. That's what Paul means. He means that although Jesus was in the form of God in all the eternal majesty and glory, surrounded by angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim who veil their faces in his presence and ever cry, holy, holy, holy. Nevertheless, nevertheless, he was as it were, willing to say to his Father and to all angels, for their sakes, I am willing that all this should be veiled in my life. Despite all this, I am willing that what Isaiah prophesied would come true in me. Who has believed our report, or to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There was nothing in him that we should in any sense, think he was unusual. Nothing in him that would cause us to say, what, what handsomeness in this man. He must be treated in a special way. It's exactly John 13, isn't it? The instincts of of the other 12 men in the room are to say, don't these other men know who I am? One of them should wash my feet. 
the one who has created all things, who brought the cosmos into being, who upholds all things, and his power and majesty, rather than, as it were, grasp tight all the sheer majestic light of heaven so that he would never taste anything but the admiration and glory of heaven, would be prepared to open his hand for, for the sake of sinners, the Word. Remember how John puts it? Everything that has being has being because of the Word. Nothing has being apart from the creating power of the Word. But this Word that had created all things was willing to become part of the all things He had created. As, as we were thinking earlier on today, willing to become an embryo in His mother's womb, willing to become totally dependent, and yet, amazingly, remain the creator and sustainer of the universe. And, and, and Paul is using these words, whether Paul himself composed these words or are quoting these words, Paul makes these words his own. And he says, here is a wonder upon wonder that we need to gaze upon. We need to reflect on who he was in heaven, in his divine person. Because the wonder of the incarnation absolutely depends on the majesty of his person. If I go to the kitchen and come back with a basin of water and go around the room washing dirty feet, that might make me an admirable individual. But if God comes down and does it, you see, the wonder of it, the stunning wonder of what God has done in His Son, Jesus Christ, is rooted in what Jesus was in heaven in His divine person. And then, says Paul, it's underscored by what He became in the mystery of the Incarnation. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and verse 7, he made himself nothing. Or in the older versions, he emptied himself. The verb means to empty, to, to make empty, to make void, to make nothing. He emptied himself, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men. What does that mean? I don't actually think it means what uh, Wesley thought it meant. You remember when he paraphrases this by saying that he emptied himself of all but love. Because the New Testament teaches us that even when he was in the cradle, he was upholding the world. He was still in the bosom of the Father. He was still in the mystery of the incarnation, face to face with God. So, so what does it mean? Well, I think the mistake there is to think that when Paul says he emptied himself, 
he must mean that there is something of which he emptied himself. But the sense in which Paul is speaking here is not of Jesus emptying something out of himself, but emptying himself into something else. You know how sometimes uh, we might say about people, he really poured himself out into me. We, We don't mean by that that they became less. We mean by that that actually he gave everything that he had, everything that she was, he or she gave to me while still remaining what they always were. And it's in that sense that Paul means that Jesus emptied himself. He he emptied himself, as Paul seems to indicate, not by taking something away, but by adding something. And you notice that he, he, he says this fairly plainly. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. If I can put it this way, Christ emptied himself not by subtraction, but by addition. The way in which he made himself nothing was not by evacuating himself of his deity, but by assuming our humanity and assuming that humanity in a servant form. That's the wonder of the if he had emptied himself of a few little attributes here and there, that, that, would be, that would be one thing, but it wouldn't be what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is that the one who is absolutely in need of nothing took to himself a nature that has need of everything. That in the mystery of the incarnation, isn't it, isn't it interesting how frequently God does His most amazing things in the darkness. The creation was brought into being in the darkness, and the Son of God was made flesh in the darkness, almost as though symbolically to say to us, do not pry too much into this mystery. This is something that is sacred and hallowed, that there in the darkness of a teenage girl's womb, the eternal creator of the universe assumed our humanity in embryonic form and lay there as as any other embryo growing and being born. you know, we sometimes speak about Jesus' supernatural birth, but actually there was, there was nothing more supernatural about Jesus' birth than about your birth. There's something altogether supernatural about Jesus' conception, but His birth was the same as every other birth. And there's the wonder of it. There's the way in which Paul is saying, look, He's not saying, because of who I am, I need to be born in a special way. He is saying, because of who I am, I can only enter the world in a supernatural way. But from that point onwards, the frailty, 
I mean, think of the death rate, the, the way in which, as it were, God gives Himself in Christ to the vagaries of history, and then in this uh, event of His birth in the, in the shadowlands of the cave or whatever in the back of the Bethlehem Inn. This is what Paul is saying. He's, he's really saying, feel, feel the tension. Feel the Feel the, the stretch between who he is in himself and what he became in the mystery of the incarnation. And it's from this passage that the Christian church has, has often tried to, to find ways of, so how, what actually happened here? And I think this passage makes it several things fairly clear. The first is that the same person who lived in all eternity in the presence of the Father lived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and throughout the whole course of his ministry. As the Christian church said in the, the early years, we, we need to emphasize there is only one person here. There is no schizophrenia here. What is amazing about Jesus is that this one person, this one divine person in that eternal divine nature assumed our nature. And he lived, and this is obviously beyond our understanding because we, we understand almost everything by saying it's like this, but there isn't anything like this. But this one person took to himself our nature and did so because God recognized there is, no, there is no resource in humanity to save humanity, and so I must do it. But if there is going to be salvation for humanity, then humanity itself must atone for its sin. Uh, angels can't do that. If the archangel Gabriel had come along and said, well, I'll go and I'll atone for their sin, the father would have said, well, that's very generous of you, but it won't work because you're not human. And the sacrifice of an angel wouldn't be an appropriate sacrifice for the sins of men and women. Just why the Bible uses this argument. Of course, Old Testament believers knew but the sacrifices of bulls and goats could never take away human sin because they're not human beings. And the judgment against human sin must fall on a human being. And so he takes our nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And in the mystery of the incarnation, he lives one person with these, these two natures. And these two natures are united in his person. They're not confused or mixed with each other. There's no point in Jesus' ministry where, as it were, the humanity of Jesus says to the deity of Jesus, just slip a little divine power in here so that I can get through this. No, he does everything appropriately to each of these two natures he has. And we say, but I, I, I can't understand that. Well, of course you can't understand it. You can put it this way. You would need to be God himself to understand how God himself does this. 
But you see, it's this that makes our salvation possible. And it's this that underscores the the majesty of Jesus' love for us, that he was willing to come so far down. So Paul speaks about what he was in heaven and his divine person and what he became in the mystery of his incarnation. And then he takes it right to the end and he speaks about how he obeyed to the point of death, even in his crucifixion. Don't know if you notice that in these verses, you not only kind of feel that John 13 and Philippians 2 echo, but that Philippians 2 and the first three chapters of Genesis echo. Adam being made as the image of God, but grasping for equality with God, not being willing to humble himself at the tree and be obedient. And Jesus humbling himself to death, even the death of the tree. Remember um, the hymn, Praise to the Holiest in the Height? Or if you don't have a background in hymns, maybe you know, um, what's his name? Elgar, it's Elgar, isn't it? The Dream of, Ger- the dream of Gerontius. Uh, where... Uh, Newman's hymn, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love, that flesh and blood that did in Adam fail should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. Becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. The most humiliating death known in the first century. A death that no Roman citizen would ever be called to die. Cicero says the very name of the cross should not be found on the lips of a Roman citizen when he's defending one of his clients. And Jesus becomes the slave and dies the death of the cross and experiences the deepest humiliation. But but not only so, as Paul says, uh, socially it was a disgrace, but theologically it was a divine judgment. Cursed is the one, remember Deuteronomy, cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. And so Paul says, Christ who went to the cross in obedience became a curse for us that the blessing that was promised to Abraham might flow to us. So what's the point of all this? Well, back to my quiz. I could see some of you are old enough to know that the speaker whom I got to know by, in God's goodness, later on was uh, John Stott. But did you get the answer to the question? What is the secret of Christian unity? And the answer? You can speak out of either side of your mouth if you get it right. The secret of Christian unity is humility. Humility. 
And it's obvious, isn't it? You know, if as, as kids we'd only read it, we would have seen do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So it's why all this great theology? I mean, why do we need our minds blown in pieces by stretching to try and understand this? Well, of course, to humble us, to say to us, my, if this is what he did, and if his Holy Spirit has been given to me, then this is for me as well. I ended last week quoting C.S. Lewis. If you'll let me stretch our time a little, I'm going to end up quoting C.S. Lewis again. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being, down through time and space into humanity, down further still, if embryologists are right, to recapitulate in the womb ancient and pre-human phases of life, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again, and to bring the ruined world up with him. One is the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must always almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover." He and it are both colored now, but they have come up into the light, down below where it lay colorless in the dark. He lost his color too. And Paul is saying to us, won't you be prepared to lose a little color in order to be like your Savior Jesus Christ? And when you do that, the most beautiful colors imaginable, God's multicolored grace, as Peter puts it, will be on display in the fellowship to which you belong, and you will hold out the word of life to a dying nation. Well, may it be so. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing plan that you hatched together with your Son and with your Spirit, and for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was rich yet was willing to become poor in order that we might become rich. And as we have become rich with his riches, we pray that we may lay in dust life's glory dead, that from the ground there may blossom red, endless life, endless unity of fellowship, endless power of witness, 
and endless grace and then glory in our lives. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.